Hi, welcome back to season four of Change Happens. I'm Genomic Master, and this is a podcast exploring leadership through key moments of change. And in speaking with leaders over the course of this podcast, it's clear that they almost always have somewhere in there a story arc that required a call to adventure or a call to action, a crossing of some sort of threshold or the encountering of some messy bits, and finally, some sort of insight and enlightenment. So, in this season of Change Happens, I'm focusing more closely on my guests' critical moments, and I'm seeking to understand how they crossed the threshold and discovered what it was that they learned along the way. I could not be more delighted to be kicking this season off with Darren Burgess. In his own words, Darren Burgess was a self-described chubby kid from Sydney who dreamed of becoming a professional sports star at one of the world's biggest sporting clubs. That dream didn't quite come to fruition the way he'd planned. He did, however, end up working for not one, but two of the world's most prestigious sporting institutions. At Arsenal and Liverpool FC. He worked with the Socceroos on their World Cup tour of South Africa, and he helped break the longest-running AFL grand final drought in history with the Melbourne Demons. This is the remarkable story of how life changed forever for Darren Burgess when he became the head of fitness and conditioning at none other than Liverpool FC. When I asked you ahead of this recording, what would be that critical time in your life that, you know, you'd want to focus the conversation on, you ummed... You didn't even get to an R. You ummed for what felt like a nanosecond and then you said Liverpool FC. What was it about that experience with Liverpool that made you immediately go to that as, you know, that seminal moment of change for you? It was a culmination of things. I'd written 94 letters to English professional football clubs from the first division to the fourth division. When I just graduated from uni, it was letters back then. There was no sort of emails or anything like that. So I got free back all saying no but I appreciated the, the time it took for them to, uh, to write back. And I guess it was to get a job in the Premier League, which was the biggest show in town for a football-loving person. Um, so in my industry, of which was a really sort of new industry, so there wasn't many jobs around. Um, so to sort of for, forge my way to a Premier League club, and not just a Premier League club, to Liverpool, which was and is you know one of the top 10 clubs in the planet, I guess, in all sports. Um, so it was probably that moment, not to mention the, the stuff that I learned on the job while I was there, which, which mm. has carried me and I'm definitely a, a better, a changed and better um, practitioner and person for having lived that experience. Mm. And I'm really keen to unpack some of those lessons that you learned. You know, when you say that you wrote to 94 football clubs, you know, I can imagine this, you know, young kid bright ideas about what the future could hold for him. I know that you have referred to yourself as something of an underdog in the past and sort of seen yourself as the, you know, the boy who couldn't on the field and wanted to get out there and do something big. But you've got to have some tenacity and some chutzpah um, to, <laughs> to keep pushing at it the way that you did. So where did that come from? Where did that sort of conviction that you could and that perseverance come from? I was never blessed with the greatest physical sort of attributes. I, I wanted to play sport for, for a living if I could. And, and when I realized sadly that I couldn't do that because I was a chubby kid and uh, you know, I wasn't always first picked, I, I had this desire to prove people wrong and, and, and I did okay on the sporting field. But that probably extended to the fact that once I graduated, 
you don't you don't look up in, or you certainly didn't in at that stage look up in the paper and find a job for a sports scientist or a fitness coach or a performance mm. manager. My sister's a teacher. My two other brothers are in finance, so there's jobs everywhere for them. And I didn't get a full time job till I was probably twenty eight, twenty nine. And so there was a lot of knockbacks and no, you can't, and no, we don't have a position. And so I was doing part time jobs everywhere, and I was just really determined to make a career out of it. Um, so never did I think that that career would lead me to Anfield, um, but uh, certainly was just really determined to see how far I could go with it because I just had a passion for, for that industry, I guess. So with that as a backdrop, you know, 94 letters, dreaming up a job that really didn't exist in the way that we might see other professions, how did it feel when you got that call up for Liverpool? What was happening in your life? What was your Tell me about the emotions when you got that call. Yeah, I was working for the Socceroos, so I was busily preparing for the 2010 World Cup and um, yeah, I was a lot involved in that, travelling back and forward from South Africa to, to look at hotels and training venues and making sure it was up to standard and, and playing in, in uh, friendly matches. So uh, myself and two other Aussies and the doctor involved, Peter Bruckner, was contracted by Liverpool to have a look at where their injuries were why they had so many injuries and um, he certainly recommended that they bring in somebody in my area. So I was doing the the, the World Cup job. I had a, a wife at the time who was pregnant, so there was a whole lot to consider around that space. There was a couple of AFL clubs that were interested. When you get the call from you know, the CEO of Liverpool to say, um, we want you to interview for this role. A- a- anything else just took a back seat. Certainly any other, the, the football clubs or anything like that that was going on just took a back seat because I remember clearly uh, Peter, the doctor, saying to me, I know you've always wanted to work in the Premier League, but could you work for Liverpool because I was a Manchester United fan? <laughs> I just said something like, uh, everyone has their price, Doc. Or, uh, and I thought he was taking you know, taking the mickey. So, yeah, it was it was pretty cool. I remember getting off the phone. Because uh, the negotiations took took a little while because it was a big step, um, obviously, uh, personally and professionally. And I remember when the contract came and it had the Liverpool emblem on, I thought, this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool. Was there any part of you that did hesitate about saying yes? Were there things that you were worried about that, you know, notwithstanding an aspiration here, did give you pause? Uh, the main thing, Nelly, is could I do it? That, that was the main thing. Mm. Um, and it was... Yeah, there was those those massive amounts of self-doubts. When I took the job about a month later, so in South Africa, just before I was about to fly out, the coach, uh, Rafa Benitez, uh, got sacked or resigned, depending on who you listen to, and took 18 staff Mm -hmm. with him. So the whole department was gutted. There was one assistant coach left. Yeah, literally, we turned up on day one. And there was no one there. There was me and an assistant coach to take the superstars through a training session. And so, um, and this is Liverpool. It's not, with all due respect, uh, you know, a, a third division club. So going back to mm-hmm. your question, I, I had some doubts about whether I could do it. And then I had just enormous doubts once once Rafa got sacked. And, yeah, there was there was no one there. So we arrived on a Friday and after, play, after being pitch side for Australia versus Serbia on a Wednesday, and we're interviewing people on the Saturday and Sunday to start on Monday. So it was it was just wow. this incredible whirlwind. 
I was about to ask you the question of, you know, what what was it like to walk through those doors on your first day or better yet, what did it feel like to step on Tanfield Stadium? But I'm in, listening to you, I'm thinking maybe those things got drowned out, the excitement of those kind of moments got drowned out by the reality of what you were faced with or did you still have the you know those feelings existing you know side by side the excitement of what it was versus the terror of now an empty staff listing I'll I'll probably give you two examples of that the very first session that we had because the world cup was still going on a lot of the superstars weren't there but there were still a few um, a lot of the Liverpool superstars were still performing in the World Cup, so they weren't there on day one of pre-season training. But because there was no one else around, um, I had to take all of that, that first session. And I had to demonstrate a drill that I wanted them to mm-hmm. do, an exercise, and that involved me sprinting at my top speed um, to one of their <laughs> players playing a ball to me. And I... I'm demonstrating to these Liverpool players, right? And the whole time I'm going, what am I doing? My first touch is awful. And uh, these guys are just going to laugh at me. I'm an Aussie from, you know, who was a hack soccer player um, trying to demonstrate a drill. (laughs) (laughs) And fortunately, it's the greatest first touch I've ever had in my life. And um, the ball just sort of dropped at my feet and I played it back and then I just looked at him and said, so that's how you do it, you know, really casually. But inside <laughs> I was just thinking, well, what the hell? That was an amazing touch. How good was that? Um, so that was the first <laughs> moment. And then the second moment, um, it was about two weeks into pre-season and um, we were still training at, at um, Melwood, the training ground, and one of the physios said, uh, Burjo, um, I'm heading out to Anfield today um, just to check a few things because we've changed the change room. Do you want to come out and just, just familiarise yourself? And I just went, holy crap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just sort of went, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll come out and have a look. You know, it'd be good for me to sort of <laughs> get used to it. But, but inside I was thinking, it's Anfield. Because you, because of what I described earlier, you just went into process mode, process mode, process mode. I need mm. to hire staff. I need mm. to do this. And I, we had a pre-season tour uh, in Switzerland that I had to organise and, all these sorts of things. And, and then when he said, I'm just going out to Anfield to organise a few things, do you want to come? It, it, it just smacked me <laughs> in the face. Yeah, yeah. And I'd say, yeah, I'll follow you out there, no problem. But it was, a, it was a really big moment. I remember walking in the dressing room going, my God, and seeing the sign there, which football lovers who might listen to this will know that this is Anfield's sign. And um, I didn't touch it then because I didn't want to, you know, be, you know, let the physio know that I was excited to touch the this is Anfield sign. But um, yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. That's amazing. So putting aside the kind of almost the giggly excitement of being in this, in Anfield and Liverpool and sort of stepping back on like professional level, what was, did you um, move into the role with a clear intention of what it was that you wanted to drive at Liverpool? What Were there certain changes that you were seeking to to institute and implement while you were there? The year before they had come, uh, I think maybe seventh, which was sort of unacceptable for Liverpool. Um, and the, the common belief at the time was that they had suffered too many injuries. And the CEO at the time had said, um, we, we need to sort out the, the, this um, this injury crisis that he described, 
And so he brought in the Aussie doctor who then implemented the changes that, that he did. My remit was keep the star players on the park. And that involved working with the local physios who, who were really good, so it wasn't an issue there, but it was more just a training philosophy that was attempting to build resilience into the players so that they could cope with the demands of the Premier League. Understanding I never worked in the Premier League, so yeah, it was I had to sort of learn on the job and learn pretty quickly. The main thing when you work at places like Liverpool and and, and perhaps Arsenal and Manchester City and United is, is two things really keep the players injury free and by that we mean sort of soft tissue injuries hams muscle pulls and things like that um, and also um, enable the players make the players resilient and resilient enough to play um, Saturday Wednesday Saturday Wednesday Saturday Wednesday at the fastest hardest mm-hmm. league in the world so that, that were the two things did your definition of resilience change in in, in working to that brief? Was it just fitness or was there a broader definition of resilience? Did you learn things about what resilience, what constituted resilience as you worked with these players? Yeah, I really did. I had no appreciation of the fact that um, for starters in the you know two and a half years or whatever I was there, there was three days over 25 degrees the whole time, right? So these players <laughs> turn up every single day and they train every single day. And the common... Um, perception of soccer players in Australia in amongst the rugby codes is, oh, they're a little bit soft and they roll around the ground when they get touched and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I can assure you the the Aussies that make it over there and the international players are tougher in a multitude of ways um, than getting tackled uh, rugby style on a, on a rugby field. Uh, every mm-hmm. single day it's raining or snowing and windy and every single day they train they play, like I said to you before, three times a week and they train every single day. So in the 18 months, I was fortunate enough to work with Luis Suarez and he had three days off. That That's it in 18 months where he wasn't traveling or um, mm. flying to Uruguay or playing. And a lot of people say, well, um, if I was getting paid that amount of money, I would have three days off. It's just not true in, in my experience dealing with uh, mm. athletes and people in general. Um you are what you are and, and money sort of amplifies, magnifies or, or shrinks that. Um, and the resilience that people like, you know, Luis Suarez and Stephen Gerrard from my time at Liverpool is is extraordinary. Not only are they judged three times a week by millions around the world and, you know, 60,000 people, you know, live at the ground, but they do have to have the physical resilience to turn up three times a week because every single team that came comes to Anfield wants to win and wants to beat Liverpool when you play home or away. So, mm. yeah, their, their resilience uh, both on and off the field uh, was extraordinary and something that I didn't appreciate till I lived it. You know, as you talk about your experience, and forgive me, but I can't help but have, you know, Ted Lasso-style um, <laughs> visuals happening in my mind. <laughs> This guy coming in, and at least you're in the right code and you're, you're in there. But how were you, an Aussie lad, able to influence the likes of a Kenny Dalgleish, you know, football royalty? What was your way of getting the kind of cut through that you needed or making a difference or having a voice out there um, as the, the, you know, the Aussie that's never worked with Premier League to go in and cross over there and, and play that role? Well, uh, uh, 
to, to give you an example of the challenge, when uh, the English players first came back from the World Cup in 2010, Stephen Gerrard, who you know is probably Liverpool's greatest player, along with Kenny or Sir Kenny Dalglish, I presented to some of these superstars about how I was going to you know extend their career and. Um, these are the things that, that we're going to do as a department to help you guys win the league. And, um, you know, a bit of a rah-rah talk. There was only five or six players in the in the room. It was about half an hour and Stephen Gerrard stood up. It's the first time I met him. And he said, are you finished? And I said, yep. And he said, we'll see. And walked off. Oh. And I just went, wow. Wow. Okay. Challenge accepted. So my, Was it embarrassing? Uh, I just thought, what did I just do? That was just... 30 minutes mm. wasted, like just do it through actions, not through words. Like this guy's seen it all. Mm. Um, so mm. from then on, I just made sure I was first in, last out, and not just, you know, in terms of time spent um, at the training ground because that can be a little bit of a um, uh, a false sense of um, work ethic, but I just made sure that every time the players were um, required to do something that I was there, even though it might not have necessarily been my job. So whether it was a young player, um, 17, 18, and, uh, or Steven Gerrard or, you know, Fernando Torres, that it was me who was doing it. When players were injured, it was me who was there on days off to take them, uh, days after games when, um, when we'd lost and, you know, you have five or six international players who did not want to be there the day after a game training and it was just me and them training. It, it was just me who took them off and the coaches weren't there um, and I could have delegated that to one of the other fitness staff. But I just made sure that I turned up every single time and that every conversation I had was about getting the best for those players. Once they knew, and, and about five months in, I remember doing a, a lap, warm-up lap, which is a typical sort of, Thing that you might do before training and uh, Stevie said to me you know how I said we'll see he said yeah you're one of us and then just sort of <laughs> jogged off and and I just thought <laughs> that's about as best validation as, as, as I've probably had in my career yeah it was more about just turning up and just showing up and just making sure there are legitimate questions in my field as there probably are in any field about whether people are there just to sit on the sideline at Anfield and not necessarily doing the job to the best of your ability, but uh, acting in a way that helps the players, keeping them happy rather than, you know, and protecting your own job, uh, rather than challenging them when it was time to challenge them. I sort of took the other approach of uh, making sure that they knew that I was there for them, but that I would also challenge them. Was there ever a time in that period that you had with Liverpool where you just didn't get it right? You know, that you made a call that just didn't pay off, whether it's with a player or whatever whatever it was. Is there something that stands out in your mind of, oh my God, there was that time where I just got it colossally wrong? Um, there was a Brazilian uh, left back called Fabio Aurelio. He'd had multiple hamstring injuries. He was a phenomenal player. And I sat him down naively and, and with false bravado and just said, look, whatever they've done with you in the past, uh, we'll get you right. Don't don't worry. We'll we'll be fine. Not understanding the significant history that he had, and uh, yeah, we just never never got him right. He was never able to play to his full potential. He had multiple soft tissue injuries, um, and, and that's not to say that we did anything wrong in our programming for Fabio. But I should never have sat him down without fully understanding his his complex medical history. 
and mm. sort of naively said, no, 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 that's okay, we'll, we'll handle it and given him that sort of false sense of confidence because ultimately um, without knowing the history, you should just never do that. So I got that horribly wrong. And then I guess conversely, is there a moment that you remember a game match <laughs> where you kind of go, oh, my God, that is my work or it's come through here, that kind of pinch yourself moment of everything that we've been working towards here right now in this moment, I can see it. Is there something that stands out in your mind? I guess there's two, you know, um, not to say that there was that many and I'm spoiled for choice or anything, but um, <laughs> and they're two contrasting <laughs> ones. Uh, one was uh, the Carling Cup final. We were playing Cardiff, uh, who we should have beaten, by the way, but... Liverpool hadn't won a trophy in a long time. The game went to extra time and then penalties, and I was pretty active in that extra time period with, you know, motivation and supplementation and things like that. And and I felt that our, our guys, you know, handled that situation uh, better than most, and and that was due to some of the stuff that we'd done beforehand to just to prepare for penalties and to prepare for we we sort of instigated, and it's pretty. Um, common now, but this is back in 2012, preparing the players for the high-pressure penalty situation by making them walk from halfway all the way down to take the penalty shootout, try and simulate that pressure, simulate penalties in training. And like I said, anybody who's involved in sport now would say, well, yeah, that, that's, that makes sense. But it just wasn't done at the time. It was, it was something, you know, there was no... Twitter or anything like that where you can see video of teams training to do that. Um, this was something that we'd not heard done, but we instigated and our guys um, handled that that situation better than better than most. The other situation was a less fortunate one, but Liverpool had been taken over by new owners when I was there um, who were still there, Fenway Sports Group, and they owned the Boston Red Sox as well. And so they were really heavily data-driven. And I bought in a, a data mining company from Australia into Liverpool at a reasonable expense and a great sort of personal risk. And they developed a injury prediction algorithm through a, a, a stats tool called a neural network, which is really reasonably common in military and, and finance. Uh, and there are many positives and negatives about a neural network, but essentially um, it, it acts more or less like a human brain and that it, as you feed it more information, it learns about training loads and um, and it can by no means predict injuries. I have to say that because um, people within my industry who might be listening to this podcast saying would be saying quite rightly that you can't predict injuries. But what it can do is produce warning signs. Watch out for this. Look out for that. There's an increased risk for this player. Anyway, we, we instigated and I put a lot of work into it. And we're playing uh, uh, West Ham away and the coaches at the time, who were, I, I won't name, but... Um, decided to play uh, Stephen Gerrard in, in a game in which um, by both common sense and our, our uh, neural network had said that he, he shouldn't play, but we were desperate for a win. So he played after about 60 minutes, he scored. And one of the assistant coaches sort of looked over and gave me this glance like, ah, see, I told you, it, you know, this is why we picked him because <laughs> he scored. We ended up losing the game. But afterwards, it was uh, discovered that uh, Steve had a, a, a fairly serious adductor injury and missed a couple of months of uh, football. So, uh, and after that, the coach came in and said, "How did you know? I want to know all about it." So, fair play to the coaching staff. They they just said, "What what, did, what were the signs that you saw that made you sort of warn us?" So, 
that was really good sort of validation, I guess, for, for a whole range of us who put a lot of time into that, into that process. Okay, so now I have a Ted Lasso meets Moneyball visual happening <laughs> in, my, in my mind. I'm not sure about the Ted comparison, but let's let's. Go I think you've got to own it. Time. But you've always been really data driven, as long as I've known you, and um, certainly way before that became quite mainstream. Um, how have you been able to use tech and data? I mean, that, I guess that's a great example. Have there been other ways that you've been able to really use tech and data to influence and shape? behavioural change? Yeah, I guess the, the first point is, and, and you know me well enough, I'm reluctant to sort of say this, but uh, it, it was 2012, so it was a long time ago, and a lot of the practices that are now more commonplace, they, they certainly weren't back then. To answer your question, uh, my, my PhD was on um, things like prediction and um predicting career success in the AFL given a certain set of information. So I just became really um, familiar and interested with various statistical modelling techniques. Early on, no doubt, I relied on the numbers too much and left aside the personal input into it or I guess the brain's input into some of that modelling. So I probably made some errors by looking at the GPS traces too much and and didn't take into account some of the tactical nuances of the game or the personal scenarios of of each of the players that I worked with. What I think I've been able to do reasonably well is marry those two up. So I've been able to sort of say, okay, data is telling us this, but the player is telling me that. Mm. I'll lean towards the player, whereas previously I would have leaned towards the the, the numbers. Mm. So uh, it's definitely a science and art scenario. It's an interesting thing. And I think when you get more confidence and more adept at dealing with the numbers, you're more willing to put them, see them for what they are, use use the insight, but then listen to people. I think that really is a, a strong evolution. So so how and when did your time at Liverpool end? Um, well, Brendan Rogers came in and this is probably another interesting story and uh, he, he came in and, and he wanted to bring his own person into the club um, in my role um, and I, I loved working with him but the first thing he said to me is, listen, I didn't really want you here. Um, uh, I wanted to bring my own person in but uh, the owner said, you, you, you know, you're doing okay so uh, let's, let's give it a trial and see how we go, shall we? And I just went, okay, uh, nice to meet you um, and um, yeah, let's see how we go. Um, And so I worked with Brendan for, I think it was maybe six months or so. Um, And at that stage, the AFL season was starting. I'd had two kids over in in Liverpool and there was a a strong desire to to come back to Australia. I travelled for four years with the Socceroos and then pretty much, you know, another two and a half years with Liverpool. So, yeah, that once a couple of offers from AFL clubs came in, I just thought, you know what, yeah, our time's up here, and yeah, it's time to time to go back home. Um, so it was. I, I walked away from it, which sounds silly to probably a lot of your listeners and things like that. But it, it was it was the right thing to do for for both the, for mainly personal reasons at the time. So you said there were a lot of learnings from you with for you um, over that time and experience with the club. What would be some of the key learnings that you 
reflect on that you've taken forward with you to your subsequent roles and in life? In, in my field, there's a lot of sort of common beliefs around um, you have to train this way in order to get this result. You have to take this, have this nutrition in order to get, uh, to maximize performance. You have to recover this, this way. Over there, I was exposed to maybe 20 different nationalities within the 25 person squad. And um, they all had different upbringing and they all had a different um, training philosophy. So to go over to Brazil, which when I was there, we had a player who did his knee, to go over there and see how they rehabbed an ACL um, and work with the Brazilian national team people, uh, they just did things completely different to how we'd been taught at university or through, you know, English, Australian common performance practices. Um, and there was no difference in their return to play or, you know, return to train timeframes to uh, get close to some of the Spanish players and see the fact that they have their pre-game meal, um, you know, at midnight the night before um, because that's when <laughs> Spanish people eat. And it just blew my, my mind. I thought, no, this is wrong. You, you know, That would have blown your mind. <laughs> absolutely. Like you have your pre-game, you mm. the night before the game meal at 7 o'clock because the carbohydrates won't have time to – you know, digest in time and get exactly. into all those sort of things. Um, to work with players who travelled from Uruguay to England um, the night before and then play the next day and still dominate when common literature tells you that you, for every time zone change, you need to, to go a day beforehand to be completely accustomed to the new time zone, let alone climate, and you just don't have time to do that. So... It, it showed me the impact of the mental and the physical more than anything else. The number of players out of contract who are under pressure to perform who got injured versus those mm. who were you know, comfortable in their contract. Um, so it really did teach me the more holistic um, aspects of performance rather than just the numbers and the data. There are some titles, I, I reckon, that have enormous pressure built into them, So, or, or job titles. So comedian must have enormous pressure to yeah. always have to be funny, or a psychic must feel enormous pressure to always know stuff, <laughs> what's going to happen. And you've got high performance in your title. Um, and I think about, you know, headlines. I've seen one in the Evening Standard UK newspaper which said, Arsenal have hired the best in the world. Fitness guru Darren Burgess can help shape gunners into winners. How do you, how, talk to me about your resilience. Do you feel the pressure to personally, like, I mean, not just driving in others, but your own high performance, being the absolute best in the game at all times? Have you ever felt like you've hit the wall? How, how do you face into the weight of the expectation that goes with what your title holds? Um, where I feel the most pressure is when I'm having issues in my personal life that I feel like are detracting from the ability to deliver to the athletes. And there's been a few of those over mm -hmm. the past five or six years. So that's where I feel the most pressure when I'm unable to give my all, I guess, to the players, both from a performance point of view and also as perhaps a mentor um, to, to the staff as well. That's mm -hmm. when I feel like I'm under pressure. I've been lucky enough to be in, you know, every coach's meeting for 25 years. I've, I tried to work it out maybe a year ago, but I've probably been involved in, I think it's over 1,100 games at least a national level. 
with that, even through osmosis, you're going to learn to handle pressure okay and be a bit more comfortable than others in that environment. So I really see it as my job to when the heat is on to just uh, calm everybody down and and see if there's a process that we can go through that we've discussed during the week to come at to come out the other side of the pressure. So how do I handle it? Um, put myself through a transcendental meditation course about 10 years ago, and that's really helped. Um, I'm not always as disciplined as I'd like to be, but certainly uh, trying to read a lot around uh, awareness and self-resilience and everything from, you know, from parenting to yeah, other people in my position or, or in similar positions, you know, CEOs of big organisations and things like that, how they have handled it and, and just try and, yeah, learn from as many different sources as I possibly can. Now, I'm going to wrap up, Darren, but at the risk of making this sound like we're scripting your epitaph, when people say Darren Burgess, what would you like them to remember about you? I think humility would be would be top of the top of the agenda. Uh, I think the ability to be humble in all circumstances is just massive. I think um, very giving and generous. Um, I take the role of elder statesman in the industry from a professional point of view really seriously, and and uh, mentor a lot of people in that role. So uh, generosity, and then I, I think loyal. Um, I, I'd like people to think that I was I was very loyal to them personally. So yeah, I think those three. Uh, having not given that question mm-hmm. any thought until 30 seconds ago, um, <laughs> those three would probably be pretty good. Very good. And look, I can say that, um, and I'm sure our listeners would agree, that your humility certainly has come through. Certainly, given your illustrious career, the fact that you would describe yourself as the hack Aussie soccer player with a lucky first touch <laughs> um, would probably underscore the humility that is very much uh, part of you. And, you know, there'll be a lot of takeaways from people listening to this, you know, some people who are much um, bigger football fans and, you know, sports followers than I am. But certainly for me, um, the idea that you, you know, keep the star players on the park is something that I think is highly relatable for us as in the business world, thinking about our talent in our organisations and how we keep them on the metaphorical park, building resilience into players. And that may well include, as you've pointed out, preparing people for how to handle setback and loss or understanding the impact of the mental on the physical or the willingness to not avoid discomfort, to lean into that discomfort are all the ways that we keep our star players on the park. I think that, um, you know, one of the other takeaways I have from or observations of you is your power of actions over words. I love that we'll see comment, um, which basically says, you know, you can say that it's the things that you say, but your leadership is through your actions. And I think you're, you've exemplified the power of turning up, the power of showing up, um, the decision to not sit on the sideline but be on the pitch. Um, I think the, the the takeaway around, you know, using data more holistically, you know, how do you, the ability and willingness to get confident with data, understand it, but then put it to the side and listen to the human. 
Uh, I think that's where we see the real magic happen, the secret source between the, the data and the humanity. And I think finally being open to different ways, to different cultures and different approaches. And my takeaway from that is it's A-OK for me to have a snack at midnight. Uh, if the Spaniards can do it, so too can I, and I shall have no more criticism from you, Darren Burgess, about my consumption uh, habits. Um, so I wanted to thank you for your time today. Uh, as always, I love talking to you and thanks for the generosity of your insights today. My absolute pleasure, Nelly. Look forward to catching up in person soon. The Change Happens podcast from EY, a conversation on leading through change. Discover more where you get your podcasts.